Uh, so hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here, and I'm on the Fox lot with Patrick Farone. Hi Patrick. Hi Toby. Thanks for having us here, and also my friend Jennifer Holt, who was a podcast victim only yesterday. And I see myself sitting in next to what looks, Patrick, like a drawing of a constitutional convention, but with a couple of whiz-bang machines from another era inserted. It, it's actually, uh, it's the famous painting by Jonathan Trumbull of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and or the presentation to John Hancock by the, the drafting committee led by Thomas Jefferson, and included in it is, is a... Uh, is a, a giant toy robot that um, I, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know the name of the the although I know Jonathan Trumbull I don't know the name of the of the painter who put the robot in the picture it was a gift and it may actually say there if Jennifer can see is the name of the artist um, clear he this is the danger of art is that if you sign it and give yourself retribution in a way that doesn't isn't clear can you no. read it no. no. All right. Well, perhaps we'll, uh, on a later podcast, give you the name of the artist who... Uh, <laughs> but this is a robotic space we're in, in some sense, isn't it? Because this is related to the show that you're currently involved with. That's, that's true. I'm, I'm uh, a writer-producer on, on uh, Comedy Central's Futurama, which is an animated show that um, deals not only with uh, the future, but uh, to our way of thinking, the present. And, and a lot of the past and my own you know personal background having been a student of American history at Harvard and and having some interest in both studying and making history I've uh, uh, come to um, really respect the the juxtaposition of of the future and the past and so Futurama is actually a nice place to be for me now um, about 50 percent of listeners are outside the United States uh, and they're in 50 different countries some of those countries will know what Comedy Central is and okay. will have something like it, and some won't. Could you fill us in a little bit on, on what Comedy Central is and what Futurama does on that network? Sure. Uh, I mean, Ameri American television is an amalgamation of um, uh, n networks, which are uh, ABC, NBC, CBS, and FBC, which is a subsidiary of, of News Corp Fox, which tends to have... Uh, a lot of the programming worldwide that exists through Sky TV and uh, and the like, the same the same six or seven companies that that control media in the United States control both the broadcast aspect of it and the cable. Um, Comedy Central is actually a property of uh, Viacom, which. Uh, makes Futurama another peculiarity because it's actually one of the few shows produced by one of the conglomerates and aired on another one, which is to say that we're produced by 20th Century Fox Television, which is a subsidiary of News Corp, but we air on, on Comedy Central, which is a cable company established, I would say, about 20 years ago to show comedy and humor. And it exists in, in various incarnations around the world, um, but I don't know how... Uh, uh, specifically what it's called in various places around the world but I know the Futurama is on um, in about 45 countries so I hope that your listeners have either heard of us or yes and, or, and it's also a show that's gone through an unusual somewhat unusual trajectory in that it's been in and around for a long time and in different spots hasn't it yes much much to our own chagrin and that of our our, our college tuition funds uh, <laughs> Futurama has been on and off the air now for uh, we're now in our, our 12th year of producing seven seasons of television. We, we, we initially were produced and aired on FBC, on, on, on Fox, 
in in the in the states, and uh, we aired for four seasons. We we produced four seasons of television that actually aired over five seasons. Um, we became a verb at some point because the <laughs> the uh, the tradition for Futurama in its early days was that it would air uh, Sundays at uh, seven or seven thirty in the evenings, which in um, in the fall is up against uh, American football, or what we like to call football. What's 4% um, of the world's population <laughs> yes. imagines fondly to be football, <laughs> right. although no one can kick or run or well, pass. But anyway, I've got no prejudice. There's one, one guy typically kicks on each team. Um, and so we would be put on at 7 o'clock, and the, and the great thing was the advertising for Fox would be, um, you know, Sundays on Fox, The Simpsons, King of the Hill, Family Guy, uh, and, it's, and it's 7 Futurama. And then they would say, it all... <laughs> It all starts at eight, would be the way the ads ran. And, and our whole perspective was, okay, well, it doesn't matter in the fall because we're going to get bumped by the football overruns anyway. So, so the, the term being Futuramid meant that you would, you, you know, you'd produce the shows, the shows would be prepared to air, and then when the time came, we got bumped, certainly on the East Coast, uh, if not uh, nationally. Um, so we produced four seasons worth of shows. It took them five full seasons to air them. Uh, and then through a lack of interest, and, and Futurama has an interesting history in that because it is the brainchild of Matt Groening, who uh, created The Simpsons, um, there was an interest uh, on everybody's behalf of producing another Simpsons. You can't have too much of a good thing, one would have thought. And so Futurama was created, but it was created along the same rubric that The Simpsons was back in the late 80s when Fox was the upstart network that didn't give its creators notes, that wasn't involved. And so The Simpsons was able to blossom in full form without any executive involvement. That's what Matt wanted for Futurama, but at that point in Fox's history, that's not what Fox wanted for anything. It democratized and managerialized. And, and the sense was that it was, you know, that had to have control over its, its product. And, and Matt refused. And so Futurama was created in sort of this executive free vacuum which worked wonderfully for us from a creative standpoint but from a, a business standpoint um, you know what's the saying about success has many parents and and uh, failure is an orphan Futurama wasn't a failure but it wasn't the success that The Simpsons was and so there was no one in the halls of of uh, the executive uh, branch that actually fought for us when our ratings were not so good which were the result of being Futurama at seven o'clock on a Sunday night, and so we didn't we didn't uh, we didn't get renewed for a, a, a fifth season back in nineteen or rather it was two thousand and two. So, so as those as typical typically was the case, we went into a form of syndication that was basically um, it was the early days of Adult Swim, which is another property that your listeners outside of the states with which they may not be aware, but it's it's a day part, as we call it in the industry, of uh, uh, the uh, comedy, uh, a cartoon network um, network, which is, of course, not a network, but a cable station, <laughs> and uh, that airs typically animation. And so Adult Swim was meant to be of a more adult nature. And so we ran reruns along with Family Guy, which had similarly been, been canceled at the, uh, at the turn of the century. And uh, we aired there, did well. Uh, DVDs sold well. So there was an interest in bringing back the show uh, about 2005 and the first step was to make a series of direct-to-DVD uh, films. 
We made four of those that were released over the course of about two and a half years, and they also did well, and they did well internationally, and the show continued to thrive on Adult Swim. It then went into a, a negotiation with Comedy Central to, to run reruns there. They outbid Adult Swim, and so we became this, as Stephen Colbert report, uh, 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 said it on, on his show one night, uh, Comedy Central, where you're never more than a half hour away from an, a rerun of Futurama, which apparently was their, was their mandate around 2007, 2008. Then they said, well, let's, but let's go back. Let's see if we can get the original production team to make new ones. And, and almost to a person, uh, we were all available, which was a sad commentary on our own careers, <laughs> but also on the... Uh, Those college tuition funds needed topping up. That's right. And so we, but, but more than that, it was a case of this was a show that uh, working with Matt Groening, working with uh, David X. Cohen, the, the other uh, creator and developer of the show, all of us, the writers and the production staff and the actors especially, we got every single uh, of the original performers back for the show. It was something we all wanted to do. And now 50 plus episodes into the revitalization, we continue to wonder if we're going to get canceled at the end of this season and whether we return again for more. So that's, if you like, the political, economic and institutional arc of the program. Right. Given its different hosts and also the different formats for which you were writing, do you see a creative arc in, in some way that's changed over the really dozen years that you guys, more that you guys have been at different times involved? Um, again, because we were uh, from the from the writer's perspective, and and without going into too much uh, detail about how we do it, um, the 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 Fox animated shows are a little bit different from the the way animation had been done for television historically, which goes back to the days of of Hannah and Barbera, who who did Huckleberry Hound and Yogi Bear, and 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 a lot of what I would call assembly line style production, which was very um, storyboard artist heavy, which was very much uh, reliant on uh, the images above the scripts. The Simpsons changed all that in the late 80s when they did a show with uh, a, a bunch of writers and a bunch of creators who didn't come from animation and who weren't themselves, some of them were, but, but most of them were not artists. They were, they were writers who had worked in in, in sitcoms and late night television, one of the other creators of The Simpsons is James L. Brooks, who created the Mary Tyler Moore Show and Taxi, and uh, and so there was there was much more of a sense of the show as a a writer's vehicle and a vehicle for uh, based on the script, and and that was a different tradition that than than most of, of TV animation had come from. So so. Futurama was born out of that tradition, which was a, a script-based, um, heavily written and rewritten um, entity. And again, without the involvement, without the heavy involvement of, of executives uh, giving notes or, or otherwise being involved, um, we did what we wanted, and we wrote shows about what we wanted, and we were, uh, you know, in, for better or for worse, out there uh, on our own. And um, so that, and then to move from from you know the Fox and and network television of the of the of the the turn of the century to Comedy Central, which is you know the place where South Park has existed now for 15 years, which is which is a place that's supposed to be because it's basic cable, it's supposed to be a much more open and free, and you can say and do whatever you want. Um, it didn't make that much of a difference to us. Um, I will say, however, from the 
production perspective, there have been some dramatic changes in the way animation is, is produced, uh, particularly for high-definition television. And that, again, the, the, the early days of The Simpsons, if you watch a show uh, produced in the first, or any of the first eight or ten seasons, it's done classic cell animations you know the 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 artist would would draw the image it would be painted on a piece of celluloid and each now it's all done now pen or or, or ink does not touch paper in the creation of, of of professional animation it's all done on computers it's all done with uh whether or not it's done with computer graphics meaning the sort of 3d stuff that you see in movies like shrek bless you it's still done uh in a uh in camera, as it were, in a physical, I'm, I'm pointing to my laptop as if my laptop was something that could actually do this sort of thing, but talking about very powerful computers, but it's all done on tablets and it's all done in a way that the, the image is manipulatable, colorable, a, a lot of the techniques that, that we struggled with um, when, uh, and I, I worked on a show uh, called The Critic, which was an animated show in the, in the mid-90s with John Lovitz that was done in the old style. And it was done where, you know, once you got it animated, there wasn't much you could do with it. You, if you wanted to change something, if you wanted to get a, a, uh, a retake, you had to ship, you had to uh, go back to South Korea. Seoul, South Korea is where most American animation is physically animated because of the labor intensity of it. Um, and you had to get it done there, and you had to get it shipped back, and that's a time-consuming and, and costly process. Now, so much of it can actually be done digitally uh, in editing machines. And again, 15 years ago, an editing machine was the size of, a, of, a, of, a, of this desk. It was this, a huge thing with reels of, of, of tape. Now, it's all done on a flash drive, and, and uh, uh, you can do remarkable things. That's all changed. What it's done for us is it's allowed us to be able to, we actually rewrite in three different points in the, 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 the script. After the actors read uh, the script, we, we do a rewrite. After it comes back, from uh, Glendale, California, in a rough animation form, we we do a rewrite, and then when it comes back from from Korea in the fully color, full color animation, we can do more work to make it, uh, 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 to our minds, better, uh, or at least this this to anticipate the next question. There's 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 a sort of a, a there's an eternalness about a lot of what makes The Simpsons great. I think is the fact that even though it will have some topicality to it. You can't write uh, a joke, you know, about Newt Gingrich and expect it to be uh, make sense in uh, uh, in nine months from now when the show actually airs on on TV. Maybe you can because maybe Newt Gingrich will be president in nine months. But um, one <laughs> one doubts that's likely to be the case. But there's at least the uh, the possibility for the joke. Um, and so my 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 perspective is that is that we've spent. Um, uh, the Simpsons, particularly for 24 years now, has spent a lot of time writing things that are evergreen, and that's uh, that's I think what sets uh, our kind of animation and writing apart from. When I came up in this business, I worked for Johnny Carson on the Tonight Show, and what you typed that morning, he did that night, and that was a different, completely different mentality uh, as to what uh, uh, you know what your frame of reference was. So absolute topicality was the core. Sure, and and you know to a certain extent, unfortunately, it means that my children don't know who Johnny Carson is, and uh, there is no—I mean, I guess there is some life on the internet for Carson comedy classics, and but even I'm, I have a suspicion that most of your your listeners overseas 
don't remember Mr. Carson, don't remember, um, the, the, certainly his legacy of what late night television is um, has, has expanded. There was a time when there was basically one guy who did you know, he he was the the be all and end all of late night television in America, and now there are you know a half dozen or more. Right, but that model mm -hmm. main, is maintained. It it it's maintained, although it's it's reproduced like like a rabbit. I mean, you've gone from having it, it goes back to uh, I think it's Pat Weaver was the NBC executive who said uh, we'll do you know a live show in the morning and then we'll do one late at night and um, then I think he also had an idea for what became the tomorrow show but the the, the perspective of 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 welcoming a, a basically a single person who you would watch as he put it uh, through your toes uh, in bed and you would basically be put to sleep talking about today's events talking about and and this was of course the concept created for uh, Steve Allen that Jack Parr uh, then took over and took down a different direction but yeah the the, the premise that that a, that a guy would stand in front of the you know basically one camera and one microphone and just talk to people um, uh, tell jokes be a raconteur that was the premise on which the tonight show was built and then you'd bring out guests because you had to fill those days 90 minutes uh, and you bring out a musical act or you'd bring some kind An of animal sometimes an animal sometimes a child sometimes a very old person uh, either way the first question was always have you ever been on an airplane before and and that was Johnny Carson's metier I mean the ability to talk to people and to get them to you know tell the two or three stories that everyone has to to tell or so we all believed once you know once he left the the, the throne it, it bifurcated to Jay Leno and David Letterman and then it expanded beyond that to you even got a Scottish guy I'm amazed that a Scottish that Craig accent, Ferguson is yes Scottish accent can yeah. be heard on uh, U.S. television. Uh, Craig Ferguson, who appeared on Futurama, by the way, I have to say, was it was oh, a guest. He? Yes, guest on an episode that I wrote. Did a did a marvelous job playing the singing Boyle on uh, on one of our lead mutant characters. So he did a marvelous job. Now, in terms of the writing experience, Patrick, I can only imagine the pressure of having to write jokes for Tonight Show then and there that are topical. What's that like compared to writing scripts in a in a collaborative way uh, towards a story? It, it's 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 different, but there are many of the same tools that that come into play. Um, the 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 grind, as it were, the assembly line of a daily variety show, a daily talk show, is is probably there's nothing else in in television like it, with the possible exception of, of, of soap operas, daytime kind of programming, or maybe news, where you actually what we would do is we you know you get up, you get out of bed. You, you you open the papers these are the when I worked there it was long before the the internet was popularized so you so really literally would have a stack of newspapers six seven inches tall that you would just go through looking for um, items of interest um, and and you know if it was a day when a political candidate was a Gary Hart was caught with his pants down. That was, you know, there was comedy that night. That there was easy. Like yes, there were quite a few. In my in my period, there was some actually uh, some some. Uh, I, there was about a three month period where every um, every joke had the word Bork in it because Robert Bork was 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 being appointed to the Supreme Court, and there was a great uh, folder all over it, and it was a funny sounding name with a with a, an odd looking beard. And so, so you those those were good days. Then there are days when, you know, you're not going to write something about um, a, a 
political strife in, in economic strife in Greece or what's going on in Afghanistan I mean, that sort of stuff does not make for mm -hmm. real uh, humor unless perhaps you're uh, uh, what's Krasner's first name the uh, political satirist um, uh, it's, it's for that kind of show there was no real place for that so so you spend the day coming up with that material for uh, you spend the morning coming up with the material for the monologue then and as typical for these shows there's always a, what we call a desk bit or a sketch or some other kind of remote piece that would be created and that was that was how you spent your afternoons but it was a nine to five job that that because the show you know, had to go out on the airwaves. We would pre-tape it at 5:30, and that's still how how Conan and 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 uh, Jimmy Kimmel and and Jimmy Fallon they all still do it that day for basically that night's um, uh, uh, airing. And and The Daily Show, Colbert, all these shows. I mean, the list goes on and on. And they're staffed by typically uh, younger, but also uh, fresher because it is a bit of a grind. Uh, writers who um, are um, able to come up with these ideas day after day after day and and at least in my day the strategy was you'd work at a show like that for two three four years and then you'd move into the situation comedy world or or screenwriting or someplace where uh, even though the work wasn't quite as steady there was at least more of I mean, you were always at the service of the host you were writing for Johnny Carson I, I worked for uh, Joan Rivers for a period and and for Johnny and then when Johnny retired um, Jay Leno brought in all his own writers so I didn't have uh, I wasn't but but my point is just that you would write for that voice yeah. and so um, in in TV you typically want to be a creator you typically want to get your vision on the air whether it be uh, a show like Lost or uh, a show like uh, The Simpsons or, or Modern Family or programs uh, that are popular, I suspect worldwide, or at least most of your viewers uh, will have heard, uh, listeners will have heard of. But, but you know, it's it, it's not necessarily a singular vision because the concept of writing is a very collaborative process. But it's at least beyond the single, you know, one-line, two-line jokes that that we would be writing for for late night. So, so you'd move into that. The typical career had you moving into that realm, and and. Of course, as I said, I got into animation through through the critic, and then uh, I worked for a number of years uh, with the Jim Henson Company. We produced several uh, Muppet shows at a time when people um, cared about the Muppets. Uh, I hope, I guess, that that's returning with the, with the, with the recent movie. Although the premise of that movie was that nobody cares about the Muppets anymore, <laughs> um, and so I. I um, um, you know, I, it, it goes from being a world where you're writing for one voice in very short spurts mm. to developing character arcs that are um, sometimes 30 minutes long, sometimes meant to cover an entire season. And so because the late night is, is so modular, you can plug this joke in, and, and that's how the, the hosts work. They will get, you know, 50, 70, 90, 100 jokes from which they can choose the 15 or so that they want to do that night. Whereas when you're writing a script for um, a cast of, of characters, they don't have the liberty to just pick the jokes they want. They're reading off the sheet, they're reading off the paper, and uh, uh, it's it's the, the process of creating that kind of, of, of 30 or 60 minute story is, is uh, historically, again, very collaborative. That, that a show like um, the late night shows have 15, sometimes 20 writers because, you know, if one guy gets a headache, somebody else has to come in and fill in because you're dealing with a deadline. Whereas in, 
in in sitcom television, and this is true of dramas too, you have bigger staffs because you you need to bounce ideas off one another, and you need to develop. Um, it may be it may be singularly the vision of a. Uh, of a David Kelly or a, a Shonda Rhimes or somebody who is the creator of the show, but your your uh, the individual scripts tend to be at least the first drafts are written by a single person who then brings it back into the room where it is rewritten and rewritten, rewritten. and rewritten, um, and and that's certainly what we do here at Futurama. That's the the as I say the model of of Fox's animated shows by way of of, of sitcom TV, and so it's it's a there's a there's a there's a there's a typical interest in making sure that um, all the characters are served that you're trying to you know f fulfill a a uh, a mandate that's 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 that that's a that's about entertainment but also about just just storytelling and and if you can make a point if you can make you know uh, make some kind of comment that's that's either satirical or has a uh, a social, socially redeeming value, uh, to quote the Bard. Then all, all the better. But it's, it's a, it's a, it's a longer term proposition than opening the paper, find, finding who's in trouble, and making a joke at their expense. Yeah. I, I wonder if we could shift gears a little now, uh, Patrick. Sure. And there, there are two other things I want to talk about. And Jennifer, please do chime in at any moment. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit later about the Guild, mm -hmm. where you've been involved for some time in. in the Writers Guild, yes. Writers Guild, and were president for quite some time. But before that, I wondered if you could explain to some of our listeners who may not know this, what it means to be a writer-producer, as you are on Futurama, and why that's different from being a writer on Futurama. Well, uh, it's it's a title, <laughs> more than anything else. Um, I, I'll try to make this as brief as possible because it is a it is a politically charged word in the entertainment industry to be a producer. Um, hist again, historically, and, and I'm relying on my own understanding of the way this, this worked rather than any real uh, personal uh, anecdotes because I'm too young to really know have firsthand how it worked. But, but in, you know, if you think of a producer in, in media in general, it tends to be uh, the person who puts up the money. Certainly in, in feature films, the studios do that now, but there's somebody who is uh, called a producer who typically is in charge of making the production, of, of seeing that the right people are hired, that, that the, the deadlines are met, that, that the process of actually making um, the, entertain, the form of entertainment, whether it be a TV episode or a motion picture or a radio broadcast or a web series or a, a blog, the, the, somebody is in charge of the overall production and that is the producer. Now, in, in television, um, what what used to happen was you would have uh, a producer who did that, who was in charge on the set and was supervising, and it still exists now that we have uh, someone who we typically these days call a line producer, um, who is on the, uh, uh, I don't know what the line is, perhaps it's the line between the above the line and below the line talent, but the fact is it's somebody who actually makes sure that that uh, that the cameras have film in them, or, or have, have, have digital flash drives in them, and that there's somebody to do the jobs that need to be done. That casting is done, and and, and there is a, an organization called the Producers Guild that, that does yeoman work in making sure that producers are 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 treated uh, appropriately. Um, but over the past generation or more, um, what had, what has happened in TV is that writers, who used to be um, 
the person who not only created the television show by writing the initial pilot script, but who then sort of shepherded and became the showrunner of the uh, of the show and made sure that uh, again because everything starts with the script in television and the television is a writer's medium they became the folks who really made uh, you know were the engineers of the train and um, that person because calling them a writer um, has has te precise technical meaning uh, under Writers Guild contracts in terms of how much they have to be paid, what kind of royalties and residuals they get. Very often what would happen is they would get the additional title of executive producer. And so people who were not, uh, who were not first and foremost producers, who were first and foremost writers, got the title of producer. Um, again, in the early days of TV, that was limited to the showrunner or to the head writer or to somebody who really was in an, in an overarching production capacity. Um, that changed over time because the other writers as staffs got bigger because it used to be that you would have a, a head writer and you would farm out freelance scripts to people who would come in and write an episode of your show, write an episode of another show, and, and you could work on five, ten, or, or more shows in a season, and that's how freelance writers made their living in the 70s and 80s. When I came up in the 80s, that had all but vanished, except for certain Writers Guild rules that require a small number of freelance scripts every season. You are mostly finding TV shows starting in the 70s and 80s to be written by a staff. That staff of writers who, uh, again, they're not all getting the script assignment for each individual episode where you get a written by credit, you have to give them a credit that's not just writer. And so the credit that they got was co-producer, producer, supervising producer, consulting producer, co-executive producer, all the way up to executive producer. And, and I'm not saying that they're meaningless titles because very often what, what writers do is a lot of the production duties, including casting, including uh, supervising editing, including supervising the, the actors and, and uh, on the set, and, and making set design decisions and animation. We do all kinds of character design approvals, and, and there's a lot of production work that writers do. But the fact of the matter is we are, uh, we are not what I would call the, the classic form of producer under uh, exclusively the way a line producer and an associate producer typically are, but 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 right. So writer producers are are the folks who actually you know, not only do they write and rewrite the scripts, but do a lot of the production elements. And one of the sort of inside baseball, to use of course another sport that may not be completely uh, accepted or understood by the rest of the world, um, but the terminology I assume is still still usable. That 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 we are paid. Uh, under Writers Guild collective bargaining agreements that have certain minimums and that portion of our salary as writers we're paid with a pension contribution and a health fund uh, contribution that's a percentage of that salary. If we're paid as producers there is no such additional contribution. So they want to make our producer fees as high as possible mm -hmm. relative to our writers fees and so therefore people will move up the ladder and make a lot of money as producers even though they're largely doing the work of writers. And that does take us, I think, to the question of the Writers Guild. And just to give people some background, uh, these guilds uh, are, have been remarkably powerful in Hollywood for many years. Ironic, given that one of the reasons for leaving the Lower East Side and coming out here was that this was a kind of right-to-work state. 
to use latter-day terminology, where the unions barely existed, and then, of course, became very, very powerful, yeah. thanks to a number of forces, including the New Deal and associated legislation in the 30s, plus the fact that a lot of people had uh, liberal democratic and socialistic, uh, even Marxist ideas who came out to Hollywood. Uh, and they also, as you've indicated from telling us a little bit about healthcare issues, became in a sense institutions that did lots of the things that companies did in other parts of the United States economy. Very important. Now, writers have, as you said, always been central to television and always been important in cinema as well. Mm -hmm. But at the time that you became, you were elected uh, popularly twice as president of the Writers Guild before you were turned out. And this doesn't mean turned out. This means a certain number of times you can be elected and then you're gone, just in case turned and turned <laughs> sound similar. You came to that presidency with a very particular mandate, a very particular set of issues and problems to deal with, and presided over. Uh, one of the uh, remarkable moments in labor relations strife in the history of Hollywood, namely the, the big writer's strike of five years ago. Five years ago? Uh, four years, 2007, 2008. Yeah. Um, the biggest one since, I guess, 20 years earlier had been the 88 one. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wondered, now that I've set you up, <laughs> if you could tell us what you guys were seeking to do, what the issues were, and, and what you think came out of all of that. Well, again, uh, because we're limited by time and, and my, the amount of wind I have in me, which, which may, some of your listeners may now be determining is an unlimited force. Um, well, that's why I just gave you the long-winded question, actually. Uh, so well, here, 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 here goes. Let me, let, well, rather than boring you with the history, I'll bore you with, with just some sort of uh, a series of anecdotes. It, the guilds in Hollywood, for the most part, and all the unions, uh, we, we have, uh, there, there are five major unions in the entertainment industry, the, the, the Writers Guild, the Directors Guild, uh, the Screen Actors Guild, which is in the process of trying to merge with uh, AFTRA, which is uh, a television and radio artists uh, union, and uh, um, IATSE, which is the International Association of Theatrical Stage Employees, which is an international union, and the Teamsters. Uh, also have a, a, a craft local here. There, there's other uh, unions within uh, the Hollywood uh, rubric, uh, and the Writers Guild itself has an east and west component divided by the, uh, the Mississippi River, but representing people worldwide. Um, th those unions came into uh, their vogue and into the, the vanguard, at, as you say, during uh, the years following the Great Depression, with the uh, the passage of the Wagner Act and the and the creation of a labor movement in Hollywood, much of it the result of of a need created by um, uh, the the fact that a lot of employment in Hollywood is insecure and that uh, you can work for uh, one company for 13 weeks and. Uh, uh, move on to the to to another company for uh, five years, and then you'll find yourself uh, working for a third or a fourth or or any any of a number of companies. This was particularly true before the great media consolidation of the past twenty years, when there's really one way or another only about five or six companies. But the fact of the matter is, people people jump around, and and the the notion that you have a a pension that's portable that goes from one company to another uh, is, is vital to um, a, a lot of people who appreciate not only the insecurity of the entertainment industry, but um, the, the short nature of careers, with the exception, say, of, of major, uh, major league sports. An entertainment career can be uh, about the shortest uh, career one, one can have in, 
and still call it a, a career. And, and, and because it's spotty, because it, it can be spread out over a number of different companies, it's important to, to writers and actors and directors that they have a centralized entity that coordinates our pension plan, our, our, our health insurance, and um, the collection of our uh, royalties and residuals. Another element of, of the reasons uh, the reason our unions uh, exist and are as, and have been as successful is because uh, we don't hold the copyright. Uh, writers in television and in audiovisual media, because of the um, the Copyright Act of 1919, uh, the concept of a work for hire, which excludes Typically, playwrights and, and novelists, you write a book, you write a play, you hold the copyright. This was the theory when Thomas Jefferson adapted the Statute of Anne during the, uh, the founding of our republic. Uh, the idea was you, you, you encourage creativity, you encourage um, uh, an agrarian nation to be um, creative and, and inventive by giving people who are so creative uh, the right to reuse and to make money off of that creative endeavor for years to come. Um, that gets abrogated in the, uh, in the 1900s by the Work for Hire Doctrine, which says that the, the entity that pays you to create audiovisual material, a motion picture, a radio play, uh, a television, uh, a television teleplay, um, they own the copyright, you do not. And so what, uh, what happened in the 50s and 60s, the, the, the guilds and, and unions particularly, um, the Actors uh, Guild and, and AFTRA, representing television performers, discovered that you know, if you made a, an hour of television in a day and age where there was no repeat, that's what, that's what you were paid for, and it went on the air. And, it's and a one-off thing. It was a one-off thing. Then along come repeats and the ability to re-show that property that you don't own, that the, the writer doesn't have copyright on, and director doesn't have creative control over the rerun, and the actors don't have their, um, their the ability to control their likenesses and images, which is all an actor really has uh, in, in the long run, you could rerun it and you got nothing, even though it was taking up the same amount of time on the network um, shelf, uh, space on the network shelf. And so, so the concept of residuals came into play, and that has been uh, more or less the the, the lifeblood of, of our industry from the talent perspective, because the the ability of uh, the companies to reuse, whether it be by rerunning it on TV or or selling a DVD or streaming and, and downloading on the internet, it it's the ability that they have to take advantage of their copyright and and make money off something that. Uh, um, they own, whereas those of us who actually participated in the creation and uh, a production, uh, except for the collective bargaining agreements that are that are negotiated with those companies, we don't have any control over what ultimately becomes of our work, and we don't get any financial recourse as a result. And and there are many pockets in the entertainment industry where that's the case, including reality television, including uh, a lot of the, the animation that's not done under a Writers Guild agreement, um, there's, there's no, once, once it's done, it's done, and um, you don't get any uh, financial um, uh, recourse for it down the road. The, the, what was happening in, when I uh, became involved in the Writers Guild 
uh, comes directly out of that uh, fact because I had worked, as I said, in 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 late night, which was covered wall to wall by a writers guild contract, which meant that that I was paid a certain minimum. I got my pension, I got my health insurance, um, and then uh, if the show was rerun, I got a I got a residual. Um, I moved into animation in 1994 with uh, the critic I had mentioned earlier, and this was a show that even though it was being written by uh, all writers guild members, the 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 show itself through a a historic blip in the contract that I won't go into uh, was not covered under a Writers Guild agreement. So um, there was no pension being paid. There was no uh, uh, health insurance. My, my son, who's now uh, about to turn 17, was born when my wife and I didn't have health insurance. So that was that was not as good as when our daughter was born two years later and um, and we were covered. So Congratulations uh, on all four, to all four of you anyway. But thank you very much. Yes, and then our, we have, there's five of us all together, so I don't want to leave my son Teddy out of it. But he was born also under a under guild coverage. So, um, but but so so the the but it seemed to us on the critic and uh, also on the Simpsons and King of the Hill, which was uh, coming on the air at the time, that that there was no reason why we were doing very similar jobs to what was being done when we worked in sitcoms and when we worked in late night, and yet we weren't getting. Um, uh, the, the the health insurance and we weren't getting the, the pension contributions. So so at the time when Futurama first came on online, so to speak, and Family Guy, we, we were organized by the Writers Guild to um, uh, basically go to Fox and say we would like a Writers Guild contract for for our work. And and because we had the 800-pound gorilla, because we had the Simpsons with us, um, you know, they, they said, sure, well, you mean you don't have it already? That uh, took them, some of them, by surprise, we're told uh, now, years later. But so, so, so that became my entry into guild politics through the representation of the unrepresented, because it was clear to me that here, here I was now working in an area that hadn't been covered, that was being covered, there was plenty of other work out there that was falling under that same uh, umbrella and that you know I wasn't about to be the one who was going to pull up the ladder once I was up on the boat and so so I got it was elected to the uh, uh, to the board of directors and uh, we, we we began what most uh, labor unions would call an organizing um, effort um, the writers guild didn't even have an organizing department at the time we had what was known as the industry alliances department which by its name tells you the mentality of labor labor in the uh, the 80s and, and 90s in Hollywood which is that this was not about trying to organize people into the union trying to organize workers um, for um, for action but rather to develop the relationships that existed between our employers and and the guilds to make the deals and and again, the writers guild all the all the Hollywood guilds were what I would call inbox unions, which was which is to say that when a company produced television or produced a movie, they would go to the guild and say, well, okay, we're gonna we're gonna do this under the Screen Actors Guild, or we're gonna do it under AFTRA, we're gonna do it with the DGA director, we're gonna do it with Writers Guild writers, and and they did it, and with the exception of of you know Roger Corman and independent productions and things that weren't done. Um, uh, under those rules, we we covered. We had a, a pretty vast coverage of the uh, uh, of the entertainment uh, industry in in America. That began to change with the consolidation and the globalization of Hollywood, and and companies 
like News Corp and Viacom and and entities that uh, you know found a business model that worked for them that did not involve the unions. And um, of course, the it's, it's years later, but you talk about a company like Comcast coming in and buying NBC Universal, and this is a this is an entity that's been non-union for 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 decades and has had a very poor relationship with with the communication workers of America. And it comes to Hollywood and it buys up two of the biggest properties in Hollywood and tries to continue to do its work non-union and that that meets resistance in 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 a a, a union saturated industry um, like Hollywood but but flashing back to about 10 years ago there became a, a an interest among the at that time seven or eight um, conglomerates in doing as much business as they could non-union the, the place where they could do that most uh, successfully was in reality television but they began to do it in cable as well and so you, they were developing a lot of cable programming including in its earliest days the the daily show with uh, uh, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert's show and, and a lot of the Comedy Central programming the, the the productions that Tyler Perry did for TBS was all done non-union um, and and you know in, a, in in any political climate this is true but certainly in the entertainment industry where there's many more people than there are jobs um, people take the work they can get and so it, it it's easy once you set up a non-union shop you can find people who are willing to do it you're going to find a lot of people who won't um, but with a with consolidation with a don't call us we'll you mentality that exists in this business it, be it became easy for the conglomerates to um, set up a lot of non-union work there uh, so so when, when I was uh, elected president of the Writers Guild in 2005 I ran with a slate called Writers United and and our uh, mantra was organize 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 and and the theory was that we needed to organize internally because our membership hadn't been you know, the, the, the notion was that uh, uh, trying to organize writers was like wrangling cats. That, that screenwriters all work in their own cubicles by themselves, never see one another. TV writers are so focused in their golden sweatshops on, on what they're doing then and there that, there's, that they will never work with one another. And you also had a, a group of people at the top of the food chain who have, who have no interest in, in helping the people at the bottom and that you're never going to get this very amorphous group of people together. Even though historically the Writers Guild had been the union that uh, struck most frequently and had been as active uh, as, as, as any of the Hollywood unions. So, so the, the, the idea was we would organize internally, we would organize externally, namely going out and in traditional union organizing fashion try to get um, shows and, and networks that weren't covered under Writers Guild collective bargaining agreements. And then the third organizing was, was to, to, to put ourselves back into uh, the Hollywood labor movement, to put it back together to, to work with the Screen Actors Guild, uh, to work with, with the Teamsters, and, and with the, the larger labor movement in America, which, again, five, six, seven years ago was, was itself going through uh, the kinds of, of difficulties, much of which continues, but uh, it, it was a time of, of a, a lot of tribalism and a lot of difficulties in, 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 in trying to uh, uh, become organizing entities. So, so we, uh, we were elected, we, we ran the table, so to speak, and, and uh, uh, became the, the, the leadership of the guild, which our first uh, 
our first step was to let the executive director who had been in place for about five years go. He had been a labor executive at CBS when he was hired by the Writers Guild. And, and we put in place a gentleman named David Young, who had been an organizer, who, who had worked for the garment workers and was um, uh, particularly at, adept at, um, at organizing. And, and what, what it allowed us to do through a series of, of probably scores of individual group staff meetings with with writers uh, of all career uh, positions of all financial situations uh, um, every shape and size uh, to, to meet and to find out what uh, you know what what kept us and brought us together um, then we were handed uh, as it were a, a, a gift in the internet which is to say that uh, with the announcement that, that Apple and, and Disney were developing iTunes into a, a protocol for releasing uh, television shows and movies um, as, a, uh, as another way, yet another ancillary marketplace for, for uh, our product to be distributed. Um, they announced that. They also announced that they were going to begin to develop uh, what were called webisodes, mobisodes for shows like Lost, that the internet was going to be a place where new media was going to be developed as new product, um, and that they were going to do it, and they were going to ask writers and actors and directors basically to do it for free under the guise of, of a promotional um, product. Um, the combination of reuse of our existing material, for which we had gotten residuals for, for decades, um, in a new uh, in a new form that that arguably might cannibalize the old one, uh, including TV reruns. People would be watching things on the internet, not on TV. People would be <coughs> uh, downloading rather than buying DVDs. People would be streaming uh, rather than uh, watching uh, you know watching cable. Uh, combined with the requirement that if you work on the office. Uh, you do 22 shows, 22 half-hour episodes, but you also have to do uh, a bunch of little webisodes that are supplementary to the uh, um, to the to the TV show, and that's just part. Of it. We're not paying you anymore uh, to do that additional work. Um, it was it was a galvanizing and coalesce, coalescing and and unifying effort, mm -hmm. and so we we uh, as the leadership of the guild. It, we found it very easy to organize members around those issues, and unfortunately, uh, the negotiations that that took place in in 2007 were done under sort of the old model that the Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television Producers were led by uh, a man who's now deceased, by the name of Nick Counter, who had been in place for about 25 years and was used to. Um, the concept of pattern bargaining that exists in the entertainment industry, which unlike pattern bargaining, the way it works in, say, the automotive industry, where the unions get together and they pick off one company at a time. You try to make a deal with Ford. If you can't, you uh, you strike them or you move on to the next company until you get uh, the deal that you want. Uh, and then you move on to the company after that and say, well, look, here's what they're doing. You've got to do it as well. The entertainment industry has turned that on its head. The six conglomerates, these these vicious multinational competitors, they get together under the umbrella of the AMPTP, and they find the union or guild that's most interested in solving, you know, in in in, in collaborating or making uh, in continuing labor peace or making an, an easy deal. 
As it happened in 2007, none of the guilds was particularly interested in being the one that, 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 would, that was prepared to give away the internet or to make it an easy deal on the internet. But, but management um, was intractable and they, they stood by their, um, their considerations and their, their demands that we do, you know, we, the residuals for the internet would be uh, uh, inferior to uh, what, we, what we thought they should be and that we work for, for free in creating the new content. And so um, 7,000, 10,000 writers uh, voted and voted to go on strike. We, we struck for 100 days. I, I, I think in retrospect they didn't expect us to strike and we did and they didn't expect us to last and we did. And um, once the contract was settled, we had uh, we didn't have everything we wanted. Of course, we wanted we wanted to have uh, more in in uh, in residuals online. We wanted to have uh, um, coverage for reality in places where they re remained uh, non-guild uh, workforces. But um, nevertheless, we got a, we got the contract on the internet, which uh, was actually an increase historically when we went from from movies. To television went from went from broadcast television to cable. Each time, the the contract would get a little bit worse, and that was because you know the business model is is very risky when when you open when you know you have a new a new business model because uh, uh, you don't know where it's going to go and it's going to be expensive startup costs etc etc. So the unions always give a little bit. This time, we didn't buy that, so our contract was actually better than the the formula for downloads is better than DVDs. Um, not as good as we wanted, but and and then of course, world financial collapse happened in 2008, which meant that a lot of everybody's dreams on both sides of the table, the the company's dreams to take over the internet, uh, our dreams to be a, a a workforce that that could become entrepreneurial and actually develop directly, so that you weren't you know when you was only six companies to work for, um, if you want to make a television show, you got to go to Fox or ABC or NBC or CBS. Uh, uh, or Warner Brothers, whereas uh, on the internet you can make it yourself and you can put it up there, and you still got to get people to watch it. But it's a, uh, uh, it's a, there's a direct correlation, and and uh, everybody's hopes at the time of the strike was that that would be the future of television production, and and it may still be, but again because of the well, the venture capital that dried up and and other economic considerations, it 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 didn't it hasn't yet uh, panned out, but. Um, um, that hasn't kept the industry from continuing to grow uh, in a tenacious fashion around um, the 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 internet as a as a going concern and as as a, um, we saw this in the past few few months in the United States with the battle over uh, the Stop Online Piracy Act where where the the internet service providers and, and companies like Google uh, lined up on one side. Uh, of this of the spectrum and the entertainment industry uh, conglomerates and some of the the unions, not the the writers guild, lined up on the other side in the interest of trying to control uh, internet production and internet uh, distribution and 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 that's I think that's where um, the writers guild should be heading in the in the days and years and, and time to come. Um, We'll we'll see. Since I'm no longer involved, I'm I can watch from the sidelines and merely pick and criti uh, criticize. But it's a uh, uh, it it is where I think the future uh, of our industry lies is in internet production and distribution. 
I know you haven't got very much more time. I wanted to ask you one question, and then maybe Jennifer has something she'd like to ask. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, um, my question is this. One of the things that happened to you during this time uh, was that you went from being the person who wrote things to the person who was written about. Uh, you became quite a significant media figure and a bad guy in the eyes of some producers. Uh, I'm not asking you to tell stories about who felt that way and who didn't, but I'm interested in what it was like to go from being writing the writer of Johnny Carson gags with a lot in between to being the person who is written about and quoted on the front page of the Los Angeles Times. Well, it's an interesting journey, and it's it's one which which of course I have I have no regrets whatsoever. Um, I, I well, one I there was an L.A. Weekly article that claimed that I dyed my hair. Um, which this, this is my 85, 86 year old father has the same color hair as this, and, and it doesn't come out of the. You can see a little gray that's there, so it doesn't come out Jennifer, of the bottom. Can you there's, there's, no, this is it's I'm it's, it's, it's authentic. It's not boot polish black. Other than that, um, there was uh, there were a couple of things here or there that I that I took exception to, but it, it you know, it, it it was it was a learning experience, and it was one where the 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 lesson to be learned was that. Um, you know when, when the same six multinational conglomerates, with, with whom you're trying to bargain and who you're trying to you know gently nudge in a professional way, when they also control the the every aspect of the media, uh, it becomes very very difficult to get your message out. We we, we had. Um, we had one rally right outside here, actually, outside on, on uh, Century City, uh, outside of Fox, where there were about 4,000 people in the street. And, and um, uh, that night on the news, uh, there wasn't a, a word of coverage. There was a, there was a dog wedding that got more coverage. <laughs> Than, than our uh, than our rally in. in By Hollywood. the way, I was at the rally. I'm just wondering. Oh, oh well, thank yeah, you for. I was at the dog wedding. Uh, I was the dog. <laughs> but we so so you know once once you accept that premise and then you know then plus there's always the old Cary Grant assertion that you know I never read the newspapers because uh, you know it's just. He, he said it much more pithily than I'm recalling, but it was some comment about you know why should I read something that that, that I know just isn't isn't the case. I mean there's there's a lot there's a lot lost between um, um, the you know what what you what one says and what how that's reported and and so you know you you I learned to accept that mm -hmm. I learned to um, more importantly though what what we learned was that when you have the same conglomerates who employ you controlling the media, you, you have to go around it. You have to find out other ways to communicate not only with your members, but with the general public. And and that was where we actually, you know, learned to use the internet in ways that, that helped us to, to win it. And and you know, we were dealing with an extraordinarily literate, intelligent um, a workforce that you know, everybody's got a cell phone or smartphone. Everybody can blog. Everybody can write. I mean, we had round-the-clock um, uh, writers working in a media room, trying to keep up with the the posts on Deadline Hollywood Daily, on on all the the then growing uh, internet uh, um, blogs, and 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 putting up putting up our own. So it became it became a case of me and and. I mean, I wasn't the only center of it, but it, it was, it was, it was a case of me having to 
<laughs> watch and learn very quickly and and try to control what was and this was it's funny because it was all happening the strike at least was happening simultaneously with the 2008 presidential campaign and so as as Barack Obama and and Hillary Clinton were, were literally duking it out in the streets near us uh, during the California primary in in January and February of 2008 we were we were all sort of learning about how to use the internet as an alternative force of of media and um, you know at, at the time the Huffington Post was brand new there were there people were still really feeling their way around and so um, you know I'm I'm grateful that I came out as unscathed as I did that I'm still that I'm still working and that I still you know my, my children don't hate me despite the fact that they they get all their news from the internet and and that uh, whatever vilification of me uh, there was was at least tempered by um, you know for, for a thankless job um, I was thanked many many times by by members and by you know people who just thought that that it was it was a righteous thing to do uh, again you don't get everything you want but you at least uh, you, you you stand by the courage of your convictions and that's its own uh, its own reward well, Patrick, Varun, thank you very much for that. I must say that it was an inspiration to many of us on the left at the time, and it was also wonderful to see people that we think of as intellectuals uh, managing to organize and take on successfully their opponents. Uh, I've much appreciated your spending this time with us, and I hope that you'll come back into the pod to talk a bit more about some of the other programs you've worked on and maybe take us through some of the stories of Futurama that you're particularly interested in. I'd, I'd be thrilled to. Thank you so much.